If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 9. Uh, and you may also want to put a finger in Romans 3 for later. <clears throat> if you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to grab uh, one of the Bibles from the pew back in front of you. The red hardback ones are King James Version, so if you prefer that, grab that. If you prefer a modern translation, then the blue ones are ESV, so you're welcome to grab that. In the King James, this is going to be on page 1000 to help you get there faster. And in the ESV, the blue one, it's going to be on page 475. Um, personally, I'm going to be reading from the ESV. Uh, so if you want to read what I'm reading, then the blue one is what you'll have. Now, it's important to have your Bible open with you uh, and here in front of you this morning because you need to see that it's not just my words. You need to see that these are the words of God. Uh, too often we can get into this sense of thinking that, you know, like, it's okay. I can trust the pastor because he's the pastor. I don't want you to trust me just because of my position. I want you to trust me because uh, I, I prove to you, I show to you that this is the word of God and not my own word. Um, so if you're a visitor this morning, I'm really glad to see you here. And we're having a meal after. Please come talk to me if you have any questions about the church. Uh, uh, I, I, like I said, I try to be an open book. Uh, talk to any of our members if you have questions. And let's, let's come together and yeah, let's talk. We'd love to talk with you more. And we'd love to see you again next week. Um, now, we have been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. And... We've made it to Matthew chapter 9, obviously, since I asked you to turn there. It's typical, it's normal for me to preach expositionally. For those who are visitors, I want you to understand this. This means that we work our way through a book verse by verse. And so we're, we have worked our way all the way through to Matthew chapter 9. And uh, the reason for this, that we work through a book verse by verse, is really for two reasons. Number one, it's because we really do believe 1 Timothy 3.16 when it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And number two, it keeps me honest as a preacher of the word of God. It keeps me from being able to jump around and choose scriptures that sound like they support my personal ideas and making it sound like my personal ideals are in the word of God. And it also keeps me from being able to skip over hard verses that otherwise would offer the re reproof and correction that I need, that you need. And so we work our way through a book of the Bible at a time. That doesn't mean that sometimes we don't study topics. Like last week we studied the family of God and what that means. Uh, but it does mean that the main meat of our diet is the word of God. So now we're 23 weeks into our study in Matthew. And we covered Matthew 9, 9, two weeks ago. And it's the introduction. This is the first time we actually even meet the guy that the book is named after. Do you realize that? Uh, I'm not very good at math, so I think two weeks ago, I said it was a quarter of the way into the book, but Matthew has 28 chapters. So it's actually more like a third of the way into the book that you're introduced to Matthew. And as we talked about this last week, uh, this work that the man is known for, the, his legacy. Like, well, how, how else do we know the disciple, the uh, Matthew, aside from his book, his account of the gospel? And he's barely even mentioned in his book. His book is all about Jesus. And as we studied and talked about Matthew, we saw that he was a tax collector, which is bad enough in our world, right? We don't want tax collectors coming around. But in Jesus' time, tax collectors were traitors to their people. They took a cushy job making money from their own people to then give it to the Roman overlords and to pad their own pockets. 
Tax collectors were greedy and traitorous people. What was Jesus doing interacting with them? In Matthew 9.9, it says that Jesus saw Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. To this greedy traitor, Jesus says, follow me. And you just got to imagine that the other disciples responded something along the lines of, come on, Jesus. You already know that he's a traitor. At least he's at least we know he's greedy. And so he probably won't follow. He'll, he'll stick to where he can make the money. But then Matthew did get up. And Luke actually says, when he tells this story, he says that Matthew got up and he left everything to follow Jesus. But the story continues. It doesn't end there in verse 9. It continues in the following verses. So let's read Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 10 together. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and with his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Matthew, after being called by Jesus, after getting up and leaving everything, he takes Jesus and his disciples and he invites them into his home and he offers a banquet for them. He is throwing a party. And this was real. This was a legit party because then Matthew invites all of his friends, all of the people who are willing to associate with him, the tax collectors and the sinners. And the problem is that these tax collectors and sinners, they weren't the... They weren't really great people, right? We've already talked about this a little bit. But the people who were willing to associate with Matthew weren't great people. Why was Jesus going there? Why was Jesus, in a sense, and maybe we could view it in this way, why is Jesus going to eat in a bar? They weren't priests or the good Christian folk that he was eating with. They weren't teachers and honorable politicians that he was eating with. The people who came to Matthew's party were people who were just like him. And these sinners that they talk about in the Bible, they're probably not just simply people who weren't as holy as the religious elite, the Pharisees. Because the religious elite, the Pharisees, would interact with some people, but they would not interact with these people. These sinners were probably the dregs of society. They were probably pimps and prostitutes. They were probably... Uh, gamblers, thieves, and drunkards. And these were the people that Jesus was dining with. Matthew invited his people. Probably, in order to make something abundantly clear, his allegiance has changed. He wants them to know that this man of honor who is at his feast has called him to be his follower and he will leave everything behind in order to follow. And then when those religious leaders saw what was happening, when they saw the great Jesus of Nazareth eating with such people, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? This is unbecoming. Doesn't Jesus know what this looks like? People are going to be talking. People are going to call him a glutton and a drunkard, which they did. You don't want to associate with these people, Jesus. 
They'll ruin your testimony and your reputation. People might think that they're your friends. This is scandalous. This is making you unclean. And this really was scandalous because for Jesus to attend this banquet with his newest disciple, Jesus was saying to everyone who would notice, I am associating myself with these people. I am willing to be in relationship with sinners. And Jesus wasn't deaf to the complaints of the Pharisees. He heard it, and in response he said in verse 12, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, this was a common proverb in the ancient world. This was common. You can see it in other texts from around that time, from earlier than that time. This didn't originate just with Jesus. It was common for people to hear. But it's built on this obvious fact that doctors are needed for people who are ill, not for those who are in apparently good health. Now, our uh, medical system and our medical knowledge has advanced more. And so we go to doctors for preventative means more than uh, probably even more than we go for reactionary means. But it, the saying is the same, and especially in the, old, in the ancient times, the people would go to a doctor when they had need of being healed. And so Jesus, he's not making a reference to his own grand healing power here that we've been talking about through weeks past, but rather Jesus is speaking allegorically in terms of spiritual sickness. This is where he starts to become called the great physician. Now he's drawing a contrast between the supposedly healthy Pharisees and the sick tax collectors and sinners. Now this isn't to say that the Pharisees were actually in good spiritual health. It doesn't really take a long study of Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees to know that they did not get along. And Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. He called them sons of the serpent, sons of Satan. He did all of these things. So he's not saying that these are healthy people uh, spiritually. But he's really saying the apparent health of the Pharisees. They, the Pharisees, they like to think that they were healthy, when indeed they were very sick, and perhaps more sick than the sinners that they refused to associate with. They refused to humble themselves enough to know how desperately they needed healing. You see, those who believe that they have no need of a physician are those who believe that they have no need of Jesus. But those who recognize their sickness and desperately want to be healed are those for whom Jesus has come. Jesus doesn't end there, but he gives them then an assignment from the Old Testament. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Go and learn was a common phrase that the rabbis, the teachers of that time, would tell to their students when their students uh, were ignorant of something. And these Pharisees, who are actually more so opponents than students of Jesus, uh, Jesus is going to the teachers, the rabbis, and telling them he's treating them like students. He says, okay, you call me a teacher? I'm going to treat you like a student. And so to these people who thought they were the elites, who thought that they had the right to interpret the law, to add to the law, to, to put on people things that the Bible does not put on them. To these people, Jesus is saying, go and learn, you ignorant fool, ultimately. Go and learn what it means in the Old Testament when it says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This was insulting 
to the Pharisees. But Jesus recognized that for all their learning and knowledge of the law, that they still didn't understand what the foundation of the law was, what the heart behind the law was that God gave throughout the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't understand what was the purpose of the law. And Jesus assigns them a quote from the prophet Hosea, who lived in a time in Israel's history where they followed the letter of the law, where they sacrificed and did the things that they were supposed to do, but they ignored the heart of the law, which was mercy. Jesus is telling the Pharisees that they have fallen into the same deadly misunderstanding as those people in Israel's time. So you see, the God of the Old Testament is the same God who sent his son to the earth to teach and save uh, the lost. So often we fall into the trap of uh, avoiding the hard parts of the Bible, the confusing or frightening parts of Scripture, and to get to the good bits, right? The stuff that makes us feel better, the stuff that's easier and simpler to read. But it's in the prophets that God makes his heart clear. It is in the prophets that God describes how actions, both sinful and righteous, make him feel. It's in the prophets that we can see how serious God is about sin and those who commit sin. Jesus finishes the passage by telling them what his purpose is on the earth. And he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus' mission is not for the righteous. He's not here to heal the healthy, but rather to save the sick sinners. Now, Romans 3.10, if you want to turn there quickly, um, you don't have to. It makes something abundantly clear. Romans 3.10 says that no one is righteous. No, not one. Now, if that is the case, who is Jesus speaking about when he says, I haven't come to save the righteous? Ultimately, if we're reading that properly, if we're understanding what Paul says in Romans, then that's no one that Jesus has not come to save in that sense. But he's actually talking about the self-righteous who think that they are somehow worthy of heaven because of their own actions or sacrifices. Jesus didn't come to save those who think they have no need of saving. Jesus came for those who know they are utterly incapable of doing anything in their own power to save themselves. Jesus came to save those who are willing to humble themselves and follow his prescription as their great physician for their sickness. Perhaps you're someone who is relying on your own good deeds to get into heaven. Maybe it's not you, but maybe it's someone who's close to you. Maybe you make excuses like, Jesus could never want me as I am. So I've got to clean myself up before I come to him, before I come back to church. Or maybe you do come to church regularly. Or maybe you stopped coming to church because you think everyone in the church is a hypocrite. And I hate being around hypocrites, so I'll just skip the gathering of the body of Christ and be the body on my own. Uh, on my own. Now, number one, you can't be the body of Christ on your own. The Bible talks about how the body of Christ is those who gather together. And if we're missing parts of our body, how is the body to function? And if you're trying to be off on your own as a lone hand, what good is that for you? You need the rest of the body to strengthen you and build you up. We need one another. And that's the whole reason why God called us into a family. So that we may be stronger than what we would have ever been on our own. And to ignore that is foolishness. It's silliness. And the other thing as well is like, if you're 
so afraid of being around hypocrites. Like, if the church is full of hypocrites, you're going you're gonna to fit right in. Like, be honest with yourself. You're a bit of a hypocrite too, probably. So uh, just because the church is full of broken people, that means that you would fit right in. Now, continuing on. Maybe you come to church regularly, and you're having trouble believing me and the Bible when it says you're a new creation if you're in Christ. You can't believe that there are good and wonderful things promised for you in Christ, and that faith in Jesus, that he is who he says he is, is the only requirement. So you work and work and work, or you give and give and give to make yourself feel more worthy. Or maybe you come to church and you think you're somehow deserving more, uh, more deserving of the good and wonderful things promised to those in Christ than the other people you see in the room. Oh, you certainly don't say it. But by the way you think about people, by the way your, your prayers are geared towards people, it shows. Maybe that's you as well. Your, uh, your family has always remained faithful, even when others have fallen away. If anyone deserves a crown in heaven, you do. In fact, it's become the promise of a crown and a mansion in heaven that's keeping you focused on doing the right things and staying in church. The thought of being in perfect relationship uh, and redeemed to your creator only passes your mind rarely. But the thought of those other prizes, the prizes, the things I get, rather than being in right relationship with God, that's what drives me on. So, you'll notice, I, don't, I try not to leave anyone out when I'm pointing these things out. Those who are in the church, those who are outside of the church. Because we all need to hear this and apply this to our lives. All of these, all four of these that I've talked about, have the same problem. And if you fall into any of these, you are effectively saying that you have no need for a physician. On the one side, you think that you could possibly clean yourself up enough to uh, somehow be perfect enough to stand before perfection itself. When you're working and working and working, saying, I'll come to church once I've cleaned myself up. Or you come to church because you think that's how it cleans you up. You can't clean yourself up enough. You'll never be perfect enough. That's like jumping in a puddle, a muddy puddle with white clothes all around, and then being like, okay, i got to scrub this without having the cleansing power of Jesus' blood. It's foolishness. And on the other side, you think that somehow you've already attained the good enough status and have forgotten your great need for the Savior. But Romans 3 doesn't just say that no one is righteous. It continues hammering home this point. He says, Roman, uh, Romans 3.10 says, As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And it continues in verse 23. In the first part of Romans 3, verse 23, it says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Has the Bible made this clear enough for you yet? Has Romans 3, just one chapter of the Bible, made this clear enough for you yet? You can't possibly be good enough to get into heaven on your own. You are a sinner. You have rebelled against God. You have heard the commands of God for how to live, and you've either outright ignored them at some point, 
or you've twisted them to somehow make yourself appear better than other people. We've all done this at different points in our lives, different ways. Every single person in this room, especially me, has done this. We are participators in this rebellion against God. We are participators with Adam in rebellion. And later in Romans chapter 6, Paul pulls no punches when he says, the wages of sin is death. We deserve death because of our rebellion, our sin against God. We have earned death for our actions. When you try to clean yourself up on your own, you're putting makeup on a dead corpse. You realize that, right? You need to be brought to life. What good does that do to put makeup on a corpse? Paul expands on this in Ephesians 2. He says, uh, Ephesians 2 verse 1, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, those who are still disobeying among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If you're here this morning, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a member or a visitor, this is no coincidence that you're here and hearing this. There are no coincidences. You were intended to be here. You were intended to hear this message and to be called to action. If you're living in such a way that you have known that you're acting as if you have no need for a physician, you think you're healthy, but you're actually dead. You're acting like you have nothing to fear when the full weight of God's terrible judgment against sin lies on your head. Maybe you're still not convinced, right? Like maybe all of this hasn't uh, been enough for you. Maybe you still think that the judgment of God is no big deal. Have you ever read the book of Revelation? Some of the most terrifying descriptions of anything in the Bible are the descriptions of how people are responding when God's wrath against sin is coming against them. In Revelation chapter 6, it says that all the people who are not found written in the Lamb's book of life, all the people from kings to slaves, everyone, they run into caves and they cry out for the mountain to fall on top of them and crush them so they don't have to face God. God's judgment against sin is big. It's massive. And it's not something that you can pay off by just doing a lot of good things. It's something that can only be paid by an eternal sacrifice. But maybe you've actually heard me this morning. Maybe you've heard this and you recognize how sick you are and how desperately you need someone who is perfect to save you and to grant you his perfection. You couldn't be in a better place. This is good news for you. The great physician has come for people like us. God loved us so much that he did not leave us to stay dead in our sin. We left off reading Ephesians 2 verse 3 with the phrase, We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But it continues in verse 2 with two of the most two of the most incredible words in the Bible. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy 
because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It's not your works. And you've been raised up with him. Or God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're not just forgiven when we are found in Christ. We are glorified. We talked about the family of God last week. And one of the perks of being part of the family of God is we're not stepchildren. We are co-heirs with Jesus as the Son of God. These are incredible, incredible promises that God has given us. And the salvation of Jesus, it's offered to anyone. It's offered to everyone. Can you believe that Jesus would save a traitor, a greedy tax collector? Can you believe that? When we talked about it a couple weeks ago, I tried to really make it hit home. Like, what if China, God forbid, rises up and conquers America? And they start forcing our, our people to pay taxes, to fund their military so that they can go and conquer more and help keep us subjugated. And then there are people in this very town, maybe your neighbor, who's like, eh, sure, I'll take the cushy job. And not only that, you know that they are charging you more than what you're required to pay, ultimately. And you still have to pay it. How would that make you feel? If someone who was sitting in the pew next to you did that, would they be sitting next to you next week? If your own child did that, would you be proud? Can you believe that Jesus would save someone like that? That he could save someone like Matthew? But can you believe that Jesus' offer of salvation was open even to the Pharisees? if they would just recognize their need for the great physician to save them. If the Pharisees would have swallowed their pride and recognized how very lost and dead they were, Jesus' offer of salvation was for them as well. Can you believe, though, that salvation is offered to you? That if you're being honest with yourself, you got to know that you don't deserve it. Contrary to what our culture often tells us, we gotta know that we're we're not perfect. The you do you boo, that culture is something that hurts us ultimately. The follow your own path, the you're perfect just the way you are. It really doesn't take much self-reflection to realize. <laughs> I don't know who you're looking at. Because if you just knew my thoughts you would know that that is not true at all. I'm not perfect. I, I, I might be the worst person I know. And if you've been a Christian for a long time, are you still amazed that Christ would save you? Because it's been 10 years for me, and when I read stuff like this, when I'm still at times awestruck. There's times when we're singing songs of uh, how Jesus has saved us. And I just, I can't keep going. You guys have seen me uh, at times. Like, I, I got to stop singing. There were times this morning that I almost, I almost hit that point. 
It's incredible that God would save me. I'm awestruck by it, that the Father would save a rotten sinner like me, a rotten sinner who was once quite the Pharisee. There was a time in my life that I prided myself on being a good pastor's kid. I would argue with my teachers over evolution. I would turn away from those who I thought would be a bad influence on me. I was a student leader for the entire Northeast Ohio, like uh, the regional denominational work for the uh, denomination I was in. I led CU at the pool at my high school. I led, uh, I was a leader in fellowship of Christian athletes, right? I played in the worship team. I led church musicals. I even led youth group as a senior in high school because we didn't have a youth leader. I never went to parties, mostly because I was never invited to parties. I treated my siblings poorly because they didn't take the show of righteousness as seriously as I did. I slandered other student leaders for the region because they were being better Christians than me, and I, I just couldn't have that. I wore a purity ring while being addicted to pornography and acting in ways that were impure. I like to think of myself as the prodigal son who kept running back to the father in tatters, pleading for forgiveness, then welcomed in as a hero and given a feast over and over and over again. When in reality, I was the other brother in that story. I was the one who was making a good show of serving the father, all the while despising him behind his back for his, his, uh, his grace, his mercy on others. I was the Pharisee. I thought I was righteous because of my works, but really I was dead in sin. But God loved me so much that he didn't let me stay there. He ripped me out of my pridefulness and showed me my futile works. He showed that all the time I thought I was faithfully serving him by sacrificing social life and being no willing to be known as that Christian kid. I was actually serving myself and making a name for myself and not for him. And when the Holy Spirit shone his light on my sinful pride and works, showing me how I was just like the older brother in the story of the prodigal, he showed me how desperately I needed the physician. And that is when I truly came home to my father and received his healing and restoration. If you've never known that, you can. You see, God desires mercy instead of sacrifice. He doesn't want your good works if they end with you. If your good works end with you, then they aren't for God. God wants to offer you salvation, but he is just. And your sin has earned you death. We, re we read the first part of Romans 6.23, right? For the wages of sin is death. But we didn't finish the verse. The rest of the verse reads, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You have been offered life through the Son of God himself, the great physician, Jesus, the promised Christ. The Father doesn't care about your good works if they are offered as a means to try to make yourself righteous. But if you would just humble yourself enough to see that he is offering you righteousness through the perfect life, the undeserved death, the vindicating resurrection, and the interceding ascension of his son, Jesus, then you would see how perfection and righteousness 
could be yours. But don't delay in that. Because you're not promised to live another day. And like I said before, it's no mere coincidence that you are here this morning to hear this. God is calling you. For Christians, when we treat others with disrespect because they aren't as supposedly good as we are, we dishonor Christ and His sacrifice for us. When we're owning libs on the internet, if you're in my generation, you don't know what that means. It means basically you slant, you shut down the liberals on the internet. When we're doing those things and saying it's in the name of Christ, we're dishonoring them. We who were once dead and were brought back to life somehow think that we're worthy to look down on others. Do you not see how backwards that is? We should be overwhelmed with humility because of Christ, not overcome with sinful pride. Now I want to leave you with a quote from C.S. Lewis to hopefully be able to help drive home the seriousness of our interactions with other people. He says this, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. There are no ordinary people you have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And may we take seriously that Christ offers to all the healing that only He can bring, the healing from the great sickness of sin, Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you would send our, your son to die for us, even yet while we are still sinners. God, may we uh, live in humility. May we not be so quick to judge others. May we not be so quick to judge ourselves. God, help us to see who we truly are so that we can respond to your Son in faith. Help us to see the ways in which we are not taking sin seriously like you do. God, we pray for those uh, who are here who heard this. God, I pray that you uh, would work in their souls. May this not be a message that falls upon deaf ears, but God, open ears, open hearts, and Lord, mold us into the image of your Son. Holy Spirit, we want your work in us. Thank you, Father, for your word. 
Thank you for loving us enough to have people write this down so we can uh, read it, even now, thousands of years later. God, thank you for your hand in history that you provided uh, ways that the Word of God would not be lost. God, you're so good. We're so grateful. Help us to be more grateful. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.